Rain on your wedding day is supposed to be good luck. But what about a catastrophic hurricane? In 2011, Natalie Antar was 26 years old and described herself as an ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman. Her wedding was scheduled for the day Hurricane Irene made landfall on her community in New York. I actually had a friend who was laughing, and she's like, you know, this is a sign from God, Natalie. If you want to back out, this is your chance. But Natalie didn't back out, and they proceeded to have a very soggy wedding the next day. I have a picture of me walking down the aisle, and, you know, brides are usually happy, and they're excited, and they're smiling from ear to ear. I look like a prisoner being led to the guillotine. I was not happy. That image of Natalie looking like a prisoner being led to the guillotine says so much about how much she was willing to sacrifice to live a traditional married life. But today's story isn't just about her marriage. It's about her divorce and how after two kids, her unconventional split forced her to rethink what it means to be a good and fulfilled mother because she now has no legal custody over her children. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. We're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. Every mother works, and moms face all kinds of deep-seated social and economic issues. And here at The Double Shift, we are not pretending we can just life hack our way out of these problems. So this season, we're getting up close and personal with our guests because we believe the revolution at work and in society begins with a revolution in our homes. We'll explore the idea that families don't have to be conventional to be successful, and that support for parents can come from the most unexpected places. This is season two of The Double Shift. The revolution begins at home. Today, we're talking with 34-year-old Natalie Antar, who has no legal custody of her kids. She was raised in a very religious environment. Tell me a little bit about your life growing up. I grew up in an extremely ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. My family wasn't the cookie-cutter ideal family. I grew up in my aunt's house. My mom and dad were kind of in and out, but my aunt was the primary parental figure in my life. And I never felt like I fit in. I went to a school where most of the girls came from an upper middle class family and none of the parents were divorced. None of the families had issues, at least none that I knew of. And I was always kind of the odd one out, kind of like Kenny from South Park. I was the poor, dirty kid that was kind of neglected, and I didn't fit in. Tell me a little bit about what are some of the restrictions and the expectations of girls and young women in the ultra-Orthodox community. A lot of the religious restrictions are based on dress in my community. So the way that your skirt fits, how long your skirt is, your elbows having to be covered that like I remember getting sent home from school once because I wore a form-fitting sweater but not a button-down shirt underneath my collarbone was showing I would wear makeup makeup wasn't allowed nail polish wasn't allowed some religious sects even mandate how thick your pantyhose have to be there's a lot of 
things that I consider frivolous. For example, I once went into an ophthalmologist and he had drawers with the different names of the different sects on them. And I jokingly asked, I said, why is that? And he said, well, each sect has a mandated shape of glasses that they're allowed to wear. I'm like, that is ridiculous. In Natalie's world in Borough Park, Brooklyn, she didn't have many role models for what a working woman was, with the exception of teachers and a couple of other professions. So she found herself making up her own idea of what it meant to work. I imagined myself as a businesswoman. I didn't know what a businesswoman was, but I would play with my Barbies and I'd imagine them wearing suits and carrying briefcases because when I would go into Manhattan, I would see these women walking around with these power suits and briefcases, and I just wanted a career that allowed me to be powerful and in charge of my own life, as opposed to being dependent on a man. Women in Natalie's community often get married in their late teens or early 20s, and by the time her early 20s rolled around, although she'd hoped to graduate from college and have a career— Friends and relatives told her she wasn't getting any younger, and it was time for her to settle down and get married. I didn't really feel like I had many prospects. Most of my friends were going on arranged dates called shidduchim. That's the word that we use for dating for marriage. And they were picky, and I felt like I did not have a right to be picky because I did not have a good reputation. I was kind of a bad girl growing up, always looking for negative attention because I didn't feel like I had that attention at home. I didn't come from a family with a lot of money. I didn't have a special bloodline. We call it yuchus. And I didn't really feel like I brought a lot to the table. So I wasn't confident about my marriage prospects. Natalie was introduced to a man who she became friends with, and he expressed an interest in marrying her. Natalie wasn't sure it was going to be a great fit, but she didn't feel like she had any right to be choosy. So she accepted his proposal. I was hesitant, but I pushed that hesitation down because I said, here's a man that loves me. Here's a man that wants to take care of me. Here's a man that will aid me in building the Jewish home that I always wanted to have. And... I did express my hesitation to people in my life, and they said that in Judaism, love comes after the marriage. Love grows. After they got married, Natalie had two kids in quick succession. And as a new mom, she placed a huge amount of pressure on herself. Growing up, I had a lot of junk food because junk food was easy to get. So I wanted my child to have good nutrition, so I would make everything from scratch. I even made chicken soup from scratch. I would simmer the bones in a crock pot to make the base for the soup. And then I would freeze them in portions and everything would be organic and everything would be high quality ingredients. I just wanted my child to have the best of the best. My children were dressed immaculately. I invested an enormous amount of time and energy into making sure that everything was perfect. And perfection is exhausting. It is exhausting. But I felt like I had to overcompensate because I was so afraid that my children would lack like I lacked as a child. Was there any particular hardest moment? Because having two really little kids together is really challenging when you're home all day by yourself. Was there ever 
a really hard moment or that you remember or, or longing for a sort of any kind of different life? When I was a stay-at-home mother with two little babies, my, my kids are 19 months apart. My downstairs neighbor, my she was my landlord actually, my landlord would work outside the home. She was a speech therapist. So every day she would come home around four o'clock and I would stand by the window to see her walking down the street and I would go downstairs to pretend like I was getting the mail or something just so I could have a conversation and ask her about her day because I felt so trapped in my own life and I felt like my brain was rotting and I just, it was so pathetic. I would literally stand by the window because I wanted to know about her work. I was, I was so jealous. <laughs> it's so pathetic uh, thinking back on it, but that was the highlight of my day at some point. That doesn't sound pathetic at all. So did you, did you have very clear gender roles in your home? And, and did you ever, did you feel like you were an equal with your husband or were things very sort of traditional? So things were traditional, but I didn't necessarily feel they were unequal because I understood that we both had different roles in the marriage. He was the one who worked. He was the one that earned the money. He was the one that took care of the bills. He was the one that took care of the finances. And I was the one who took care of the children. I was the one who cooked. I was the one who cleaned. And we were like a yin-yang. He did what he was supposed to do, and I did what I was supposed to do. I never really saw it as being unfair. I just saw it as us complementing each other. But you did have a sense that there was something missing in your life in terms of intellectual stimulation or things that you could, that you had a part of yourself that wasn't being fully used in this role. Absolutely. I felt like my brain was melting. I needed intellectual stimulation very badly, but the role that I had assigned to myself didn't allow for that. I would wake up and the first thing I would see was the four walls of my bedroom and it kind of felt like a prison. It felt like a prison of my own making and I did feel very trapped. Natalie's marriage grew more and more strained with more fighting between her and her husband. Although she says she threatened to divorce him before, she never planned on actually going through with it. But after one particularly terrible night, she impulsively called a lawyer and began the process of filing for the divorce the next day. She didn't have much of a plan for her life and kids and no money saved up to cover legal fees. But she assumed her divorce would be as traditional as her marriage. I was under the impression that mothers got custody and fathers got every other weekend and one day a week. And that was what I filed for because that's what society teaches us a traditional divorce looks like. But Natalie's divorce didn't follow this tidy little script. At one point, about two years in, her temporary arrangement was that Natalie no longer had the kids on the weekends, which meant she didn't have her kids on Shabbat, a very family-oriented time for religious Jews with a big Friday night meal. She would watch her neighbors through the window eating Shabbat dinner together as a family. Those years were really hard for me. I saw my neighbors having this beautiful life, and here I was alone because I was without my support system. I was without my routine. I was without my family. And there was a point in the divorce where it was extremely contentious, and I felt like nobody was listening to me. I felt like I was consistently losing, and I was so frustrated and 
I was sitting in my house on a Friday night alone and I just started to cry and I said God why are you doing this to me and I saw we have something called a mezuzah it's a scroll that has a blessing from God that we put on the door to protect the entrance of the door and as I was crying and I had tears in my eyes my eyes were fixed on this mezuzah on my door and in a fit of anger I just tore every single one of them off my door and ripped them into pieces and lit them on fire. I was so angry. And that was my breaking point during the divorce. It was about two-ish years into it. It was really hard. It, it just sounds like you felt so abandoned, both both by your family and community, but also by God. Every single thing was going wrong. Every single motion I put in was denied. Every single thing that I tried to say was twisted against me. And I felt like I could do no right at that point. And I was also financially ruined. I had to give my savings to legal fees and then liquidate my assets and then go into debt to pay legal fees. And I just was so angry at God. I said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why why did you put me in this situation? Why did you have to... I thought people like me were supposed to have a happy ending. I'm sorry, I'm crying, but... <laughs> Fairy tales always teach us that the kid that was bullied, the kid that had it bad growing up, would grow up and have a happy ending. And when I got married, I thought that was going to be my happy ending. Natalie would eventually get her happy ending, just not in the way she thought. We'll be right back. Hi, senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Have you ever had trouble finding the right bra for you? I really have. I remember going into the department stores and having those like underwires sort of stick in. Hurts. I know. It's such a pain to go bra shopping. That's why I have been a loyal third love shopper for years, long before they advertised on the double shift. So what do you like about them? Like you, I hate going bra shopping in person, so I took their Fit Finder quiz, which helps you find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Third love helps you identify your breast size and also shape and find styles that fit your body. And also, every customer has 60 days to wash it, wear it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, Return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. I needed to return a bra to them once, and the returns and exchanges are free and super easy, and it is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Wow, that sounds really great. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash doubleshift to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash doubleshift, one word, for 15% off today. Hi, senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Hi, Catherine. Did you notice the cool shoes I'm wearing? I did, and they are so cute. These are my newest pair of Rothy's flats. They are the spotted leopard print. They add a great flair to jeans, dresses. I've noticed they go well with any solid colors I'm wearing. 
I am obsessed with Rothy's Flats, and they have a range of styles like sneakers, loafers, points, and more. I have gotten many compliments on them so far, but I am not surprised because I am kind of a Rothy's fanatic. I actually was a big fan before they even decided to advertise on the double shift. This is my third pair. I have the black flats, which I wear year-round, multiple times a week, red points, and these leopards. Want to know another cool thing about them, Rachel? Please tell me. They are made of recycled plastic water bottles. How cool is that? Also, the way they're constructed, there's no break-in period for them. I've never gotten a blister even when I lived in New York and would walk, like, miles in them at a time. That's actually pretty amazing. Double shifters, these shoes are really legit. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash doubleshift. Go to rothys.com, that's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash doubleshift to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash doubleshift today. And we're back. Natalie Antar is the mother of two young kids who are now six and five. Four years ago, she decided to get divorced, thinking the process of gaining custody would be pretty straightforward. However, it turned out to be anything but simple. It started to stretch out for years with lots of lawyers and fighting. And after almost three years of lawyer negotiations, pre-trial back and forth, going in and out of family court, Natalie felt like she just couldn't do it anymore. At that point, I was so at the end of my rope. I was financially exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. My kids were stressed out because I was stressed out and he was stressed out and everyone was stressed out. So the judge was, I have to tell you, she was the most amazing judge. She got off her bench and she sat down in front of us and said, listen, you guys have to agree. And I said, Your Honor, I I just want, I want fairness. I want 50-50 custody. Even though at first I wanted full, I said, I I want a compromise. And he would not budge. And she said, okay, we don't have a choice. Let's get trial dates. And so it was like a scene from a movie. I was sitting in the defendant chair with my lawyer. He was sitting in the plaintiff chair and he had his lawyer, another lawyer, and another, like he had three lawyers sitting there. And... I stood up and I said, Your Honor, and my lawyer was like, sit down. And I said, no. I said, I don't want to go to trial. Just give just give me one less day a week. Let him be the custodial. Let him have all the power. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to end this. And she paused for a moment and she looks at us and she points and she says, done. And it was like a scene from a movie. Everyone's jaw dropped. The courtroom erupted. And he said, Your Honor, you can't do that. And his lawyers were objecting. And she said, You're right, I, I can't. But what I could do is make you pay every single penny of a trial. So you have a decision to make. You either take this deal or you go to trial. And he was kind of painted into a corner and he didn't have a choice. So we went out into the hallway. His lawyer had already prepared a settlement agreement. And I was sitting there trying to leaf through it as quickly as possible. It was like 45 pages. And my lawyer's just standing on top of me like, come on, sign it, sign it. I'm like, I want to read it. Ultimately, I got 43% of the time with my children. 
he got 57%. He got final decision making on the important decisions like school, medical, religion, but I didn't care because I agreed on all that. And the only reason that I would object to it would be because my ego would say, well, why should I give him final decision making? Why should he make all decisions? But I really had to override that egotistic feeling and say, okay, this is, I'm, I'm giving all of this up for the greater good, for the benefit of moving on with my life, for the benefit of still seeing my children a lot. Like, if I would have gone to trial, I would be fighting for one more day a week. He gets four more days a month than I do. So on paper, Natalie lost her custody battle. In recent years, it's become increasingly common for dads to win when there's a dispute. Although she gets to be with her kids 43% of the time and she's made peace with that, Natalie has no legal or decision-making power in their lives. And despite the fact that these arrangements are becoming more common, there is definitely still a big stigma around mothers who don't have custody of their kids. The reactions Natalie gets when she reveals that she's a non-custodial mother, well, they aren't exactly kind. So one time, a mother asked me about receiving child support. And I said, oh, no, I don't receive child support. And she said, why? And I said, because the father has majority custody. And she said, why? What's what's wrong with you? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> or one time, somebody asked me, like, what did you do? Or you don't want to be a mother? Most of the reactions are just these... Their, their face twists into this strange, disgusted look. Like, what is going on? People just are so shocked. It was sometimes hard to know people saw her that way. But Natalie started to embrace her role and explore its unexpected benefits, even though it's not at all what she thought she wanted. I get to be a mother almost 50% of the time. And when I'm a mother, I'm 100% invested in my kids and I play with them and I do projects and I'm even class mom in my son's class this year. Last year I was class mom for my daughter's class. I'm involved in the PTA, I bake cookies, I do play dates and I'm really, really invested in my kids. But when I don't have my kids, I get to be a woman and I get to be a person and I get to have a social life and I get to travel and I get to, to have self-care and I don't have to worry about a babysitter and I could just focus on myself and my own self-development. And I realized that I can still be the mother I always wanted to be. And when I'm with my kids, I'm so refreshed and energized. We make everything from edible slime to bath bombs to art projects to scavenger hunts. We do so much because I have that time to recuperate. And I have that time to re-energize. And I have that time to have self-care and to go on dates and to work on my career and I still get to be the mother I could never imagine that I would have the best possible outcome even though on paper I was a mother without custody so, so you kind of had to give up you know the idea of what 
people think mothers should have sort of for the greater good of your family and your kids. Exactly. I had to really give up my idea of what mothering really is and what my idea of control really is. It, it was hard. It was it was very humbling. It was very humbling. So I'm really reminded as you're talking about, you know, how you have time for yourself uh, of the description of you when you had these two little kids and you felt so deprived of adult conversation and intellectual stimulation and how much, you know, that that basically you felt, you know, so cut off from the world. W- you know, what are you doing in your work, in your professional life, in your life outside of mothering that is giving you that you have the time now that, that, that's giving you that intellectual stimulation? Well, firstly, I'm studying to go to law school because as I went through my legal battle in the last few months of it and over the past year when I've been divorced and had to really understand the nuances of a legal binding agreement, I received this passion for law that I never really had and that inspired me to study to become a lawyer. So I'm currently studying for the LSAT, which is really exciting. I also became politically involved and lobbied to change the laws in family court to promote 50-50 custody. And that's really exciting. And I'm just building my life, whereas most women are doing what I did when they were 19, 20, 21, 22. I'm doing it now in my early 30s. So I'm kind of building myself as a person, but yet I still get to be a mom, which is awesome. Natalie still practices Judaism, but no longer considers herself ultra-Orthodox. And what's your relationship like now with God? I have a good relationship with God because when I was going through what I was going through, I didn't understand why he was doing this to me. But looking back on it, I realized that he broke me so he can build me up stronger. I'm not the same person that I was before I got married. I'm not the same person that I was during my marriage. I'm not the same person that I was during the first 75% of my custody battle. God absolutely destroyed me, but he rebuilt me stronger, smarter, happier. So it it sounds like, you know, you have been on such a powerful personal and spiritual journey really with everything that has happened and it really sounds to me like you've come to a place of peace sort of with where you are in your life and your relationship with your kids and and family has that made you want to help other women who are also having difficult paths on this road having gone through all of that and having survived and not only survived but thrived despite those circumstances, has given me the ability to support other women going through this because I can tell them that I have succeeded in having a wonderful relationship with my children. My relationship with my children is beautiful. It's not the traditional relationship, but it's really strong and it's very powerful. I was thinking a little bit more about this the stigma question. So about the mothers who don't have custody and the stigmas that that they face, why do we see it as a way that is somehow not not a valid way to mother? 
Well, society has always put a lot of pressure on mothers. Mothers are still expected to be homemakers while going out into the workforce and working 40 hours a week. There's a lot of pressure on mothers to be perfect and mothers who dare to voice complaints about motherhood, about having a hard time, get crucified, get absolutely crucified. So there is a stigma for mothers who don't have custody because courts have historically favored the mother over the father. It's changing now and I blame feminism and I blame equality because everyone has to be equal now. But historically, mothers always got custody. And when mothers have started losing that advantage in family court, people don't understand the nuances of family court. So they think, oh, well, this mother must be unfit. This mother must be a drug addict. This mother must be crazy. This mother just must not love her kids. Because why else would a mother not automatically get custody? It's still a topic that's largely misunderstood. So the stigma isn't perpetuated because people are evil or or anything like that. It's just because there's no knowledge about it. There's no information about it. But the more that we talk about it, the more we can raise awareness and normalize the conversation. And that's what my mission has really become, is to normalize the conversation around mothers who don't have custody, normalize the conversation around alternative parental arrangements, change society's perception of the non-custodial mother. There's no one perfect way to be the perfect mother. That's what I always like to say. There's so many ways that you can still absolutely be an amazing mother without being a mother 110% of the time. We live in 2019. There's so many alternative family structures happening now. And we just need to let go of those outdated perceptions of what motherhood should be and family should be and just start getting with the times but i believe people will eventually start to understand it but that's not going to happen unless we talk about it i just have a last question which is when you look back at your wedding day do you see you know do you think about how your life would be different if you'd backed out or do you feel like it is an opportunity lost or did you need to go through all that to get to where you are now? If it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else because emotionally, psychologically, I wasn't the person that I am today. I was weak and I was impressionable and I just wanted to fit in and so if it hadn't been him it would have probably been somebody else I didn't believe that I deserved better I didn't believe that I was worth anything I didn't have the self-esteem that I had today so I had to go through that I was destined to go through that Natalie is now the founder of a group called Amazing Mothers Without Custody. 
that seeks to normalize and raise awareness about non-custodial mothers and provide those mothers with resources and support. She's very committed to her work in advocacy around non-traditional families, but finds no matter where she goes, it's hard to escape the questions. It's also a buzzkill on dates. I never really understand when to kind of tell my date, hey, by the way, so I have my kids, but it's not going to be a problem. I'm not looking for a baby daddy. <laughs> and then he's like, why? And then I'm like, well, because, you know, father has, got, well, why does the father have cuss? And then I have to go into the whole thing and it's a buzzkill. <laughs> so that's been a challenge. Yes, that's a, that is a, that we could do a whole nother podcast episode on that topic I'm sure yeah <laughs> dating as a mother without custody that should be a podcast <laughs> <laughs> this week we have a special treat for members of the double shift we are announcing our very first live video hangout chat with me senior producer Rachel McCarthy and you our amazing members we'll gab about the first half of the season answer questions and get to know each other it's coming up soon, and we'll email all of the date and time details to members. So if you want in on all of this fun, become a member of The Double Shift. Your support is crucial in making this show happen. Just go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. And on next week's show, we are doing our very first international episode. We are headed due north to Canada. We're talking to two really fascinating non-traditional families there. Women can have the reproductive freedom to have a child whether or not they're in a relationship. They can have the reproductive freedom to have a child on their own, but it doesn't mean that they have to go it alone. You won't want to miss this episode. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our editorial advisor is Amy Westervelt. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Audio mix by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson and Lauren Smith Brody. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation. And you are members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks for joining The Double Shift. Mm-hmm.